War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Aylmer and Louise Maud Second Epilogue This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Lucy Perry War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy Second Epilogue Chapter 1 History is the life of nations and of humanity. To seize and put into words, to describe directly the life of humanity, or even of a single nation, appears impossible. The ancient historians all employed one and the same method to describe and seize the apparently elusive, the life of a people. They described the activity of individuals who ruled the people, and regarded the activity of those men as representing the activity of the whole nation. The question, how did individuals make nations act as they wished, and by what was the will of these individuals themselves guided? The ancients met by recognising a divinity which subjected the nations to the will of a chosen man, and guided the will of that chosen man so as to accomplish ends that were predestined. For the ancients these questions were solved by a belief in the direct participation of the deity in human affairs. Modern history, in theory, rejects both these principles. It would seem that having rejected the belief of the ancients in man's subjection to the deity, and in a predetermined aim toward which nations are led, modern history should study not the manifestations of power, but the causes that produce it. But modern history has not done this. Having in theory rejected the view held by the ancients, it still follows them in practice. Instead of men endowed with divine authority, and directly guided by the will of God, Modern history has given us either heroes endowed with extraordinary, superhuman capacities, or simply men of various kinds, from monarchs to journalists, who lead the masses. Instead of the former divinely appointed aims of the Jewish, Greek or Roman nations, which ancient historians regarded as representing the progress of humanity, modern history has postulated its own aims. The welfare of the French, German or English people, or, in its highest abstraction, the welfare and civilization of humanity in general, by which is usually meant that of the peoples occupying a small northwesterly portion of a large continent. Modern history has rejected the beliefs of the ancients without replacing them by a new conception, and the logic of the situation has obliged the historians, after they had apparently rejected the divine authority of the kings and the fate of the ancients, to reach the same conclusion by another road, that is, to recognize one, nations guided by individual men, and two, the existence of a known aim to which these nations and humanity at large are tending. At the basis of the works of all the modern historians, from Gibbon to Buckle, despite their seeming disagreements and the apparent novelty of their outlooks, lie those two old, unavoidable assumptions. In the first place, the historian describes the activity of individuals who, in his opinion, have directed humanity. One historian considers only monarchs, generals and ministers as being such men, while another includes also orators, learned men, reformers, philosophers and poets. Secondly, it is assumed that the goal toward which humanity is being led is known to the historians. To one of them this goal is the greatness of the Roman, Spanish or French realm. To another it is liberty, equality and a certain kind of civilization of a small corner of the world called Europe. In 1789, a ferment arises in Paris. It grows, spreads, and is expressed by a movement of peoples from west to east. Several times it moves eastward, and collides with a counter-movement from the east, westward. 
1812 it reaches its extreme limit, Moscow, and then, with remarkable symmetry, a counter-movement occurs from east to west, attracting to it, as the first movement had done, the nations of Middle Europe. The counter-movement reaches the starting point of the first movement in the west, Paris, and subsides. During that twenty-year period, an immense number of fields were left untilled, houses were burned, trade changed its direction, millions of men migrated, were impoverished, or were enriched, and millions of Christian men, professing the law of love of their fellows, slew one another. What does all this mean? Why did it happen? What made those people burn houses and slay their fellow men? What were the causes of these events? What force made men act so? These are the instinctive, plain, and most legitimate questions humanity asks itself when it encounters the monuments and tradition of that period. For a reply to these questions, the common sense of mankind turns to the science of history, whose aim is to enable nations and humanity to know themselves. If history had retained the conception of the ancients, it would have said that God, to reward or punish his people, gave Napoleon power and directed his will to the fulfilment of the divine ends, and that reply would have been clear and complete. One might believe or disbelieve in the divine significance of Napoleon, but for anyone believing in it, there would have been nothing unintelligible in the history of that period, nor would there have been any contradictions. But modern history cannot give that reply. Science does not admit the conception of the ancients as to the direct participation of the deity in human affairs, and therefore history ought to give other answers. Modern history, replying to these questions, says, You want to know what this movement means, what caused it, and what force produced these events? Then listen. Louis Fourteenth was a very proud and self-confident man. He had such and such mistresses and such and such ministers, and he ruled France badly. His descendants were weak men, and they too ruled France badly. And they had such and such favourites and such and such mistresses. Moreover, certain men wrote some books at that time. At the end of the eighteenth century, there were a couple of dozen men in Paris who began to talk about all men being free and equal. This caused people all over France to begin to slash at and drown one another. They killed the king and many other people. At that time there was a man in France of genius, Napoleon. He conquered everybody everywhere. That is, he killed many people because he was a great genius. And for some reason he went to kill Africans, and killed them so well and was so cunning and wise, that when he returned to France he ordered everybody to obey him, and they all obeyed him. Having become an emperor, he again went out to kill people in Italy, Austria, and Prussia. And there too he killed a great many. In Russia there was an emperor, Alexander, who decided to restore order in Europe, and therefore fought against Napoleon. In 1807 he suddenly made friends with him, but in 1811 they again quarrelled and again began killing many people. Napoleon led 600,000 men into Russia and captured Moscow. Then he suddenly ran away from Moscow, and the Emperor Alexander, helped by the advice of Stein and others, united Europe to arm against the disturber of its peace. All Napoleon's allies suddenly became his enemies, and their forces advanced against the fresh forces he raised. The Allies defeated Napoleon, entered Paris, forced Napoleon to abdicate, and sent him to the island of Alba, not depriving him of the title of emperor, and showing him every respect, though five years before, and one year later, they all regarded him as an outlaw and a brigand. Then Louis Eighteenth, who till then had been the laughing stock of both the French and the Allies, began to reign, and Napoleon, shedding tears before his old guards, 
renounced the throne, and went into exile. Then the skilful statesmen and diplomatists, especially Talleyrand, who managed to sit down in a particular chair before anyone else, and thereby extended the frontiers of France, talked in Vienna, and by these conversations made the nations happy or unhappy. Suddenly the diplomatists and monarchs nearly quarrelled, and were on the point of again ordering their armies to kill one another. But just then Napoleon arrived in France with a battalion, and the French, who had been hating him, immediately all submitted to him. But the Allied monarchs were angry at this, and went to fight the French once more. And they defeated the genius Napoleon, and, suddenly recognising him as a brigand, sent him to the island of St. Helena. And the exile, separated from the beloved France, so dear to his heart, died a lingering death on that rock, and bequeathed his great deeds to posterity. But in Europe a reaction occurred, and the sovereigns once again all began to oppress their subjects. It would be a mistake to think that this is ironic, a caricature of the historical accounts. On the contrary, it is a very mild expression of the contradictory replies, not meeting the questions, which all the historians give, from the compilers of memoirs and the histories of separate states, to the writers of general histories and the new histories of the culture of that period. The strangeness and absurdity of these replies arise from the fact that modern history, like a deaf man, answers questions no one has asked. If the purpose of history be to give a description of the movement of humanity and of the peoples, the first question, in the absence of a reply to which all the rest will be incomprehensible, is, what is the power that moves peoples? To this, modern history laboriously replies, either that Napoleon was a great genius, or that Louis XIV was very proud, or that certain writers wrote certain books. All that may be so, and mankind is ready to agree with it, but it is not what was asked. All that would be interesting if we recognised a divine power based on itself, and always consistently directing its nations through Napoleon's, Louis's and the writers, but we do not acknowledge such a power, and therefore before speaking about Napoleon's, Louis's and authors, we ought to be shown the connection existing between these men and the movement of the nations. If instead of a divine power some other force has appeared, it should be explained in what this new force consists, for the whole interest of history lies precisely in that force. History seems to assume that this force is self-evident and known to everyone. But in spite of every desire to regard it as known, anyone reading many historical works cannot help doubting whether this new force, so variously understood by the historians themselves, is really quite well known to everybody. End of chapter 1 Recording by Lucy Perry in Bath on July 2nd, 2010.